You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. in San Francisco and this is Bloomberg Technology coming up in the next hour temporarily on hold Elon Musk creates chaos with early morning tweets causing confusion over his deal to buy Twitter the company's current CEO speaks up we will talk to a founding member of the early Twitter team about where this chaos is headed plus Reid Hoffman joins me for a wide-ranging conversation about just where this chaotic market cycle is headed and what it all means for startups plus his thoughts on of course, Twitter and his former colleague, Elon Musk. And $200 billion wiped off the crypto market since the start of the sell-off. Just how cold will this crypto winter get and how long will it last? Well, the back and forth from Musk continuing. As we said, early Friday, he tweets the Twitter deal is temporarily on hold. But as Bloomberg Opinion's Matt Levine points out, that's not actually a thing. He says Musk signed a binding contract that doesn't allow him to just walk away, even if it turns out that spam accounts do represent more than 5% of Twitter users. Musk later saying he's still committed to the deal, but it's all casting doubt on what actually happens to Twitter. For more on this, I'm joined by Jason Goldman. He was part of Twitter's founding team, a board member from 2007 to 2010, and also the White House chief digital officer under President Obama. So, Jason, you did not mince words about this in your tweet. And to put it in words appropriate for our television audiences, you say either way, Twitter faces a not good outcome. Why? Mm. Well, because either Elon's going to acquire the company and he's shown to be how unserious he is about the whole proposition and his ideas about what he wants to do with it are unserious, or he walks away from the deal, which is a, basically a one-sided option that he holds at this point, uh, and the company is left in a situation that is increasingly chaotic and difficult for them to manage. How big is the bot problem really, though? I mean, does Elon have a point? 
No, he doesn't have a point. It's not a serious point. Like, I, I think it's fine to report that that's the reason he said the deal was on hold, which is, as Matt Levine points out, isn't a real thing. The bot thing isn't a real thing either. He, he, we, we don't have to look very far to prove that we know that's not the real reason for what's going on here, because on April 21st, Elon said, if our Twitter bid succeeds, we will defeat the spam bots or die trying. He set himself up to say that he was going to take on this big bot challenge, which I don't think is a, is a significant problem and now he's saying the exact opposite which is well i'm just going to not try at all to deal with the bots you tweeted we went through a lot of episodes of soul-crushing drama in the early days a lot of it self-inflicted but this really has to be the worst ever and i'm sorry for all the folks at the company who are somehow expected to just do a job through this mess we know that a couple of twitter executives were let go yesterday the company now uh, has a hiring freeze they're trying to cut costs they might rescind some offers what's it like being a twitter employee right now well, yeah, I mean, the rescind offers is a very serious step, right? I mean, that's people who have accepted a deal with Twitter, turned down other offers, potentially, and now being told they don't have a job. And to be told there's a hiring freeze and you're letting go top executives, that's why Elon walking away from the deal is also quite bad for the company. Uh, because you're now talking about a company that not only has hamstrung itself in terms of its hiring and sent a mixed message to employees about what the future is, uh, but you're also dealing with a situation where the board of the company has said, we don't have any better ideas than selling to Elon uh, in terms of what the future should hold. So it's just put it the company in this very precarious death spiral. Now, Peral Gagarwal, the current CEO of Twitter, took some responsibility for the changes that he's making. He said he's not doing this because, you know, he's a lame duck CEO or just to keep the lights on, but he's thinking about the health of Twitter's business and preparing for all scenarios. What do you think that means? Do you think if Elon Musk wasn't supposedly buying the company in a matter of months that he'd be doing this? Right. I mean, I think that's what Prague has to say. And, and it is his prerogative to have the executive team around him, even if it's for a short period of time. Uh, and, you know, I give Prague a lot of credit because comments that were leaked from the town hall a while ago said, you know, I've only been on this job for months, but I've been at the company for a decade. And yes, we could have done better to avoid this sale. Unlike a lot of other people on the board or, or, or Jack, the, the, the founder who said this is the only way out, Prague took a lot of responsibility to say we, we could have done better to avoid this outcome. So I think it's fair for him to say now, like, I'm going to position this company in the best way I can to lead to whatever exit or whatever endpoint we're leading towards. It's just that none of those options are very good when you can't even hire new employees right now. You've got Snoop Dogg jumping into the fray saying yeah. you might have to buy Twitter now. What about another scenario here? Somebody else, Snoop Dogg or not, I saw someone ask you about whether Google uh, could make sense yep. as a buyer. What about if someone else buys Twitter? Could that happen yeah, I mean, at this point? Google's approached the company a number of times. I don't know about since the, the time I left, but we were in conversation with them at least twice when I was there uh, to potentially buy the company. I don't know what the regulatory hurdles are for Google to buy it at this point. Uh, and certainly, I think it's more difficult for a company like Facebook, who also tried to buy Twitter a number of times, uh, to buy the company. So it's it's difficult to see those kind of outcomes. Uh, but I, you know, I think if Elon walks away uh, and the stock price continues to decline, uh, other options certainly would be on the table. Now, speculation has been made that it's Friday the 13th. Maybe Elon mm. Musk is just trolling us all. What do you think? 
Yeah, absolutely. I don't think he's a serious person. Uh, and I don't think the way that he's approached this on bots is serious either. It's certainly not about bots. I think the, the most credible take is that he wants to renegotiate the price. Uh, and certainly he's got the board in such a position where they agreed so quickly and said they saw no other options. And Jack said that Elon's the sole solution to the company's problems, um, that Elon would be able to say, well, if I'm the sole solution, I'm the only, I'm the only option here, then I think I should be able to set the price, particularly as you let off the show, the tech market has uh, declined precipitously since uh, he started buying up the stock. So I, I don't think it's serious. I don't think he's serious about bots. I don't think he's been serious on his positions about free speech. I don't think he's been serious on his ideas with putting the algorithm on GitHub, which isn't even a technically sensible idea. I think this is all a way for him to be in the headlines, have people talking about him. He'd like to own it if he probably can get it for a better price now, but he doesn't really have any ideas what he wants uh, to do with the company. And every additional turn of the crank where he talks about what he wants to do, whether that's the business plan that leaked to investors or when he talks to, to folks about his free speech ideas, reveals how unseriously or how uncritically he's approached this. And I think that is why the company is in such a predicament. And just to remind our viewers, he tweeted that he's still committed to the deal. He has signed a binding contract. Um, yeah. But Jason, always appreciate your opinions and, and your take on what's happening here. One of the founding members of the early Twitter team, Jason Goldman, thank you. Coming up, Reid Hoffman, partner at Greylock, co-founder of LinkedIn, his thoughts on the markets, what it all means for entrepreneurs, and of course, his take on Twitter and Elon Musk. He joins me next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Trillions 
profits have been wiped off public markets in the last few weeks. A lot of the pain coming from tech stocks. Saudi Aramco this week replaced Apple as the world's most valuable company. The turmoil has led to hiring freezes and even layoffs at public and private companies. So where are we now in this cycle and just how bad will it get? I'm joined now by Reid Hoffman, who's been building and investing in tech for decades and knows a thing or two about ups and downs. He's also the co-founder of LinkedIn, of course, a partner at Greylock and out with an updated version of his number one best-selling book, The Startup of You, which came out 10 years ago and is being re-released for a new generation. Reid, always great to have you back here on the show. Always great to be here. We're going to get to the book, but I want to start with the mood. Given all of this market turmoil, valuation cutdowns, trouble fundraising, what is the mood among venture capitalists right now? How dire is it? Well, I definitely think the mood is troubled and expects more volatility to be coming rather than less. Um, but on the other hand, I think that technology is still very strongly the future. And so I think the question isn't, oh, my God, you know, flight from technology, it's more, ah, there'll be more volatile fundraising, it won't be as easy, there won't be as much capital available, uh, some businesses will be much harder to raise than for others. And so, you know, sort that out and be careful about that. Check your balance sheet, you know, check all that. But uh, we still think technology and technology investing is year by year, you know, where we'll see most of the growth and most of the change in industries in the world. An investor at Activant Capital, Steve Saraceno, told me he thinks millions of people are going to lose their jobs in tech and that it's going to be absolutely shocking for the industry. Do you agree? Fundamentally, no, but it's not because I don't think there will be a number of companies that have gotten over their skis, have started investing, have burn rates that are far above their revenue, will do a reset. You know, generally public market companies will have to show that they're disciplined in their operating margins and their and their revenue. And so I think you will see layoffs. But the thing is, I think capital still goes, technology is the future. So I think that, for example, people who get laid off in one company might have three other job offers in other companies that are actually, in fact, are hiring. So it isn't quite that dramatic, uh, you know, like, oh, my God, there's going to be all these people out on the streets. It's actually going to be there'll be a shuffle for in talent and companies uh, shuffling to ones that perhaps have either deeper piles of capital or more revenue that's going. Now, others have told us they're saying batten down the hatches, cut costs, build what matters. What are you telling your portfolio companies right now? What are the top three bullets? <laughs> well, it depends on the company. So obviously, if you have a place where you have a, a deep well of capital, good revenue, good growth, uh, actually, one of the places where you can tell the strong companies from the week is you keep investing uh, into where you're heading. We did the same thing when, uh, you know, for example, LinkedIn in 2008. It was like, okay, um, we have a chance to invest in the future here. And so when you have companies that have the ability to make that play, you take that play. On the other hand, of course, if you say, well, we're still figuring out product market fit, we don't uh, quite know how it's going to go yet, or, you know, we don't, we want to maintain our burn rate relative to uh, having uh, extra extra months to choose our, our market, which we want to raise future capital, then be more disciplined about hiring, be more disciplined about expenses, uh, and predict for the future. Is this like 2008? Is this like the financial crisis or the dot-com bust? Or is this something completely different? Well, I think it's different in part because 
uh, while, for example, there is a real shift in the market, obviously everyone the last couple of weeks across a number of things, I think there's still a lot of capital that says, okay, if I were choosing where growth will be, where the future of industries will be, where the future of, of, of kind of uh, new revenue streams, new businesses will be, technology is still it. It just now won't be all technology. If it seems new and interesting, throw money at it. It'll be, okay, a little bit more disciplined about, well, actually, in fact, this is a good industry of the future. Let's bet on that. Now, in the startup of you, you pioneered this idea that anyone can be an entrepreneur. What is your advice to a new generation in this environment about how they take control of their own careers when a lot of people are reevaluating life and work? So the basic idea is careers are now much more like a startup than they are like a career ladder, career escalator. You can call it a jungle. You can call it a jungle gym. You have to actually be maneuverable and flexible. Adaptability is the new stability. And so the tool set for entrepreneurs, even if you don't start your own a company yourself, is the tool set for every professional, for every worker, for every career path. And the book is trying to say, well, here's the basic set of the tool sets if you would like to run your career in this modern entrepreneurial adaptable way. Now, someone else who seems to be at an inflection point in his career is Elon Musk, taking on the possibility of buying Twitter. I know he's a friend of yours. He was your colleague at PayPal. How bullish are you on the future of Twitter under Elon Musk? Well, I saw your earlier interview with Jason. I thought it was very good, by the way. And uh, basically, I think everything he was saying about Twitter and Twitter circumstances is correct. I think it hasn't innovated uh, nearly uh, as much as it could have or perhaps should have you know, in the last decade, five years, whatever it is. Um, I think one of the great things about Elon is he is one of the world's most amazing innovators. I actually do think this is counter to the, what Jason was saying, that he has a plan, that it's an interesting plan. Um, yes, the bots thing may or may not be uh, fully on target or not. But actually, in fact, I think he goes, uh, he's an active user, as we can tell in the last couple of days even. And he has a sense of where the product could go. And, and Elon is always a product-oriented entrepreneur and inventor. And so I think he actually has a plan and has something that he's interested in doing. Um, but I think it's a, you know, obviously the, the tweets of where are we going with the deal and so forth, they're not great for stability within the company and the employees and, and knowing what's going on in the future. So you think he's serious. I mean, if, if you were on the other side of this deal, wouldn't you be frustrated about all the back and forth? Well, of course you should be frustrated because it, you know, part of part of being a little bit more, you know, like tweet in the morning saying it's on hold, tweet, tweet a little later saying I'm still committed, you know, is, you know, needless thrash uh, on this. On the other hand, I think Elon is also very exciting about, you know, kind of like, you know, here's a here's a person who revitalizes the space industry, you know, who, you know, brings on the future in green cars and a bunch of other things. So I think there's a bunch of very interesting things that are possible with the innovation that's great. I think that the 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 volatile tweeting, you know, perhaps you know, much a little less great. Now, we're coming up on almost 20 years since you founded LinkedIn, and I wonder if this could be a moment, the moment, where the new, new social network of the future gets born. Is the market, our users, is even Elon Musk saying, we need something new? So I think we almost always, you know, like, for example, if you said, will there be a new social network five years from now that we don't see right now? The answer is almost certainly yes. Uh, we wouldn't necessarily have predicted TikTok coming in, thinking, oh, all that video stuff is already owned by YouTube. Uh, I think we will see it. Now, the interesting question, of course, 
part of what my job's about, is trying to figure that out and predict it and invest in it early. I do think that Twitter has great potential to it. That's actually one of the things that is most exciting in all this. And I think that the being able to work towards that potential is huge. But by the way, in terms of a new social network, I think you will see someone in the next five years where it will come from and which country it will come from, I think is very much TBD. We're coming up on the anniversary of the Facebook IPO as well, and you were an early investor. I know that you have been frustrated, and you've expressed that with us, of, you know, with some of Mark Zuckerberg's decision over the last few months, particularly around the whistleblower. Um, but what do you think about the vision for the metaverse? Are you bullish on that? Well, so I haven't actually talked to uh, Zuckerberg about that at all. I tend to be a little bit more cautious on the metaverse, thinking of the, than off a wide variety of things, startups and everything else just because I think that what we'll first see before we see so deep social applications or work applications is deep entertainment applications that have a broad-based uh, appeal and interest. And I haven't seen those yet. I've seen, you know, kind of uh, specific ones. And what they've done with Oculus is really amazing. But I think we're still some ways away from that, from call it mass adoption of the metaverse. Or maybe you should call it mass-verse adoption or something like that. Now, the metaverse, if it happens, could totally change the way we live and work. What do you think about the future of work? Has the center of gravity, gravity permanently shifted to the home or not? I think almost certainly it has not shifted uh, permanently to the home because we are social animals as a bunch of people who get their energy by working with other people. You can make decisions more quickly with everyone in the room. Um, so I think that there will be uh, a return to offices, a return to uh, you know kind of places where people are congregating together in order to work. On the other hand, of course, we've had two years of adopting tools for virtual work, and I think that will expand the tool set. Key talent of um, you know kind of uh, you know kind of uh, zooming in or teamsing in from some other place, uh, being able to have distributed companies that that come together every six weeks you know something along those lines i think all of that is stuff that you're going to see persist but i don't think the office is going away interesting now you recently co-founded another company yourself called inflection focused on the future of ai tell us more about this and where you think the future is where are you making your bets right now well one of the things ai is i think going to transform every industry um, I think we see line of sight to it for some of the amazing work that, like, for example, Microsoft and OpenAI are doing with uh, Copilot uh, and GitHub. I think you're seeing all kinds of things. And so with inflection, we thought, okay, what are the things that we can most do to help give human beings superpowers when they're dealing with computers? What are, what are the set of things that enable that to happen? And there's not a lot that we're saying about it yet uh, because uh, you know we have a specific product idea that we'd like to test and develop out and then kind of you know do the aha moment of pulling back the curtains. Uh, but it's, a, it's an AI plus humanity uh, is the theory. All right, Reid Hoffman, can't wait to see what else comes of that. Thank you, as always, for joining us. And, of course, check out the updated version of Reid's book, Startup of You. Thank you, Emily.
A major change could soon be coming to Apple. Bloomberg has learned the company is testing swapping its lightning charging port with the more prevalent USB-C connector. This would be for future iPhone models. This is a move Apple's making to help conform to looming European regulations. Apple's also working on an adapter that would let future iPhones work with accessories designed for the current lightning connector. Coming up, Toast has found the perfect recipe. The restaurant software company beating estimates amidst market turmoil, but with rising pressure on consumers. Does it keep up? We'll discuss. Next, this is Bloomberg. This is Elon Musk being Elon Musk. This is so Elon Musk-centric. This is him doing what he does, which is stirring up the pot. I want a lower price if I'm Elon Musk. I think he is angling for a cheaper price. He may have a problem raising the debt component here. He certainly has a lot of negotiating leverage right now. I'd want to do anything I could possibly can do to get out of this deal at this price he set, right? This this price makes no sense. 5420, you know, is looking very increasingly unlikely to be the to be the final bid to the extent there is an acquisition. Twitter um, was not as uh, mispriced as, as you know, perhaps some other equities have been. The company is is ready to be acquired. Um, and I think Elon is, is a, you know, attempting to kind of just lower the price here. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. I want to stick with that story. And Elon Musk, the billionaire, saying he is putting his deal to buy Twitter, quote, temporarily on hold, then later clarifying he's still committed to the acquisition. What's the market's take on all this? Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow back with the latest. And we just heard Reid Hoffman, right. who is a friend of Elon Musk, worked with him at PayPal. He thinks Elon Musk is serious and has a plan. He thinks he's serious. He thinks he has a plan. You heard a lot of doubt in those voices that we just played across the market. Reality is Twitter stock down 9.7% after those tweets, right? That's the biggest drop, believe it or not, since October. But the reason that we're following the share price in this snapshot moment in time is to track how far it's gone from the $54.20 bid that Elon Musk has made for the company. In other words, the spread. And come with me into my Bloomberg terminal. Let's take a look at the spread because we use that as a proxy to gauge Wall Street's belief of how likely this deal is to proceed in its current form or indeed if it's going to happen at all. You see there on the right hand side of your screen, the spread is currently at $13.48, the gap between current share price and Elon Musk's $54.20 bid. On Thursday night, it was at $9.11, so we've really widened the spread. And in reality, the market is increasingly telling us that it believes Musk is either trying to reprice the deal, like we heard from some of those voices, or he's going to walk away from this proposal altogether. Bloomberg's been speaking all day long, Emily, to merger arbitrage specialists who put the odds of this deal at 40%. Really? 40%. Can you believe it? That's not high. That's not high. But it's Friday. That's where we're at right now. Let's see where we're at on Monday. Okay, well, let's see what the weekend brings first. Right. Ed Ludlow, thank you.
I want to move on now to Toast. The cloud-based restaurant software company recently reported their first quarter results, beating expectations on top of giving a positive outlook, sending shares jumping a bright spot in the recent spate of tech earnings reports. I want to bring in Toast CFO Elena Gomez for more talk about this and the digital revolution in the restaurant industry. Elena, first of all, look, you know, you're facing a lot of very difficult macroeconomic forces here, prices going up, consumers under pressure. How is it that Toast is managing uh, to keep strong results coming? Yeah, thank you for having me, Emily. Yeah, we toast, we uh, we posted and printed yesterday some great results and beat across all of our metrics. And really, that's a testament to uh, our product resonating in the marketplace. And we're seeing really a secular shift in the restaurant industry where every restaurant is trying to digitize their operation to run more efficiently. And Toast is well positioned to capture this opportunity. And our Q1 results really speak to how well our sales team executed, but really speak to the opportunity opportunity ahead for toast and in the inflationary environment when with costs rising actually toast becomes even more valuable because we can help our restaurants be more efficient help them manage their pricing their menus have them see line item by line item detail on their menu items so we're really excited about the opportunity ahead interesting though but how much choices do restaurants have right now when the price of food is going up and they've got to pay their bills. How do you see inflation impacting the business, your business and the restaurant business over the next few months? Yeah, that's the beauty of the platform, I believe. So we, we give, we arm our restaurant owners with data insights and performance insights so they can look at their menu items. They can potentially uh, increase their price if they need to. And also, we help restaurants be more efficient. It's a margin game for restaurants, right? And so if we can help them with our tools be more efficient, uh, whether that's looking, at giving them hardware to help more run their operation more efficiently, or looking at their menu prices and or optimizing uh, the food uh, the the food that they put on on their menus. All of that is really what Toast does, and actually becomes more powerful for them during this inflationary environment. Now, Toast went public during the pandemic, and uh, we just saw Instacart file to go public. They've you know, cut their valuation by 40% as they navigate this process. What do you make of them you know, deciding to go public now and their model, especially in the macro environment we're facing? Yeah, you know, I think uh, Instacart has always proven to do a really good job of, of their consumer marketplace. I do think the market is a bit different, uh, but if they have a good long-term plan, which is how we think about our opportunity, uh, then, you know, I, I think that they can have a successful IPO, but I think it depends to make sure that they have a very long-term plan. And we always know there'll be different market backdrops, and that's how we think about our business as well. Uh, we're really focused on the long-term play, and as long as they really have a good long-term strategy, I think that will work well for them. Restaurants and uh, you know companies like yours are becoming more intertwined with the gig economy and the gig economy's future. And I'm curious what you think about the labor issues that you know they're facing, that we're seeing, especially in a tight labor market where where people are just struggling to make ends meet. Yeah, no, we're seeing, we're definitely seeing that as a pain point for our restaurants, and that's where we can really uh, help our, our help our restaurant owners by leveraging our tools. If they can leverage our tools, we can we can we can actually help them effectively do serve more diners 
uh, even with our platform. And so a great example is we had a restaurant that had eight servers serving 90 diners. A year later with our platform, they served over 200 diners with nine servers. So it just gives you an example of the power of our platform to help them in this very intense labor market. I also have to ask, you worked at Visa in your uh, previous life and what you I make did. of the fact that, <laughs> you know, crypto payments have been on the rise and Bitcoin settled more than Visa last year. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I think that, that there's a wait and see approach on, on Bitcoin and, and crypto and, and, you know, we're paying attention to that, uh, but we'll see how it plays out over time. All right, Toast CFO Elena Gomez, thank you for sharing thank you for your perspective me. with us. Great to have you today. Coming up, we will wrap the week that was in crypto. The future of stable coins after the Terra USD debacle and just how long this crypto winter lasts. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. It is time now for our crypto report and wrapping the week in crypto markets that was. What a week. As Bitcoin plunged as low as $26,000 Thursday, $200 billion in market value has been erased from the entire crypto market amidst the sell-off. To give you an idea, that's almost as much as the annual budget for the entire state of New York, which is $220 billion. Our crypto contributor, Shanali Basik, is here to put it all in perspective. Shanali. Emily, it's really amazing because you see that much wiped out of the entire crypto universe, all talking on the heels of what happened in UST and the Terra ecosystem. But Bitcoin itself, the biggest of the cryptocurrencies, really had fallen here below that very highly watched $30,000 level. And it has gotten a bid here today, over 6% of a rise in more than tw- in about 24-hour period, helping bring the global crypto market back up more than 6% as well. But 
still, over a seven-day period here, you are seeing most cryptocurrencies, the top 10 at least, mostly lower on the, the seven-day period, with the one exception being the other stablecoin, USD coin, which is much, closely, much more closely linked to the dollar. But still, Emily, we're going to be talking about it for a while now. What does the breakdown of the tarot ecosystem mean for DeFi and crypto writ large? Well, and it'll be interesting to look back on this moment as an inflection point in the broader crypto story. Shanali, stay with us. I want to bring in our next guest for his take on all of it. Adam Jackson is the co-founder and CEO of Freelance Labs, one of the core teams building the Brain Trust Network, a user-owned talent network that matches enterprises with technical and design professionals. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Okay, so I don't think there's any debate. We are in the middle of a crypto winter. How cold does it get and how long does it last? Well, look, the winter is here. The, the tide is completely out. And I think, you know, this happens every couple of years in, in crypto, certainly, and in tech more generally. But this is a big sea change. We're going to see now that, you know, these old systems that people were playing with, these kind of Ponzi economics, a lot of DeFi that never really generated any value that was very self-referential, it's going away. And I think we're going to return to you know, this is when the scammers leave, the people who are playing games and, you know, I, that all goes away. Everyone's been cashed out, zeroed out, if you will. And we're going to go back to fundamental networks, networks that actually drive value for their users. What does value mean moving forward? There's a lot of questions. You know, you think about what Mark Cuban had said and the idea that more of these crypto assets need to be more SaaS-like. Uh, there's a big question about the utility moving forward for crypto ahead. What are you seeing founders and talent gravitate towards now that some of the bubble has been burst? Yeah, sure. I, I, I don't know what crypto being more SaaS-like means exactly, but I'll tell you what the fundamental value system of Web3 is, is replace the middleman who extracts more value than they provide, replace it with software, right? And, and so move from overly extractive investor-owned networks to user-owned networks, networks, marketplaces that are owned by the people who make their living on them. And so when you compress those big corporate margins, that uh, just all, all they do is um, misalign incentives between the operator of the marketplace and the users who make their living. When you squash those down, you give the value back to the people who are actually making their living on the network or the demand side, right? That's what Web3 is all about. User-owned networks growing faster and becoming more valuable than investor-owned networks. What do you make of what's happening with Coinbase where, you know, I'm sure they would say, you know, we're not a Ponzi scheme. We're not scammers. We're trying to bring some integrity to this market. But you look at the stock totally plummeting um, over the last several weeks. What's the future for a company like Coinbase? Yeah, I mean, look, Coinbase is certainly not a scam or a Ponzi scheme. They're an incredibly valuable piece of infrastructure in the U.S. They're uh, one of the most important and easy to use on ramps to the system. Um, they're, they're an absolute staple, and they're not, they're not going anywhere. I, you know, they're uh, they're a critical piece of of this infrastructure for for everybody in the U.S. You know, a question I have, too, it's like there's these big publicly traded companies like Coinbase where there are already massive, massive investors. But what do you think about the VC area where some of these valuations are coming down? What is the propensity for VC dollars to go into new businesses, especially at the early stage, to help new founders really expand this market in a downturn? Yeah, the, the downturns are great for building. 
right? This is when, when it's really cold out and everyone has to be disciplined and everyone's saying, trim your budgets, extend your runway. It's, I know it's a bit of a meme, but it's true. It's good advice. And these venture funds, look, they've already been raised, right? I mean, these, you know, massive, like Katie Hahn's new fund and these other giant crypto funds, this money's been raised, it's going to be deployed. But I think we, we've all learned a valuable lesson here that, you know, some of the stuff just gets a little too crazy. You know, these, these self-referential business models like you see in play to earn or DeFi, um, as well as just these absurd valuations, right? Hundreds of millions of dollars for seed stage stuff. You know, uh, party's over, right? Time to get back to work. So where does the money get deployed if the party's over? Well, party party's over for the crazy stuff, right? And um, look, I, I, I'm I'm guilty too. I, I was an early investor in Terra. I think Algo Stables are the holy grail. I was really hoping it'd work out. I took a beating like the rest of them this week. But um, but when I say the party's over, I mean this this like stuff like that's just so far out there from a business model perspective. That's not actually providing anyone any value, right? Ponzi economics, right? That party's over. We need to go back to building networks that give real value to people doing work in the real world. Our, our network Brain Trust connects knowledge workers with big clients like Nike and Goldman Sachs that need them. And because it's owned by the talent, the, the fees are zero on talent and 10% on clients. That's a way better deal for both sides, right? Talent makes more money, clients' budgets go further. Win-win, that's the whole point, right? That's a fundamentally valuable Web3 network. What do you make of what's happened with Terra and what it says about the future of quote unquote stable coins? Well, there's there's two types of stable coins, right? There, there's um, asset backed like USDC uh, and Tether. Those are, you know, you could redeem one for a dollar that's hopefully in a bank account somewhere. So if there is a run on the bank, should be okay. Um, now the argument against those is they're not censorship proof, they're not decentralized, right? A, a government could turn them off easily, et cetera. Um, the holy grail is the algo stablecoin, this concept of something that can maintain a peg to the U.S. dollar, um, but not have full dollar backing, right, and, and be able to withstand an attack. And, and a lot of us, you know, this, is, this experiment's been played many times, uh, and, and a lot of us thought, you know, Terra may be, may be the breakout. And, um, you know, there's a lot of, like, finger pointing around, what, did someone attack this, or was it some hedge fund in New York? And, like, the, the, but the answer is, it doesn't matter. If there's a flaw in the system, it will be exploited. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened this week. So uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure it will be tried again, though. Adam, I'm really curious about the responsibility of the tarot ecosystem now that so many people have lost money. Is it completely invest at your own will here, or are there going to be chances to recoup some of these losses in any fashion? Do they owe anybody anything? <laughs> you know, um, I, I can't speak for them because I'm not part of the core team or LFG or anything like that. I'm just like an early, you know, investor in the project. And, um, you know, I, look, these are super risky, right? So many of these things are speculative and, um, you know, it, you have to understand that and do your research before you go in. I did mine. I understood so what I was getting into. Um, you know, I think I just read, you know, a couple hours ago that, um, you know, Do Kwan and, and the team are, are attempting a restructure uh, to recap the system and hopefully make uh, UST holders more whole. Yeah. I hope it works out. Yeah. I mean, it's, they, look, they're not, you know, okay. this is not a scam, right? These, these guys worked hard to make this work and, and um, you know, I wish them the best. We'll see how it plays out. Adam Jackson, co-founder and CEO of Freelance Labs and Bloomberg Shanali Basik. Thank you both. The 
medical scrubs and accessories company sank 22% in Friday trade after reporting first quarter results that missed expectations and lowering its guidance. How's the company being impacted by supply challenges, inflation, macroeconomic turmoil? I want to talk about that and more with Figs co-CEO and co founder, Trina Spear. Trina, thank you so much for joining us. So look, Trina, um, it's a very different environment than the market that you went public in. What do you make of investors' reaction here? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely been an interesting quarter. I mean, what we did was we really um, feel as though uh, we had a great quarter, right? 23% uh, revenue growth with 20, sorry, 26% revenue growth with 23% adjusted EBITDA margin. We're really coupling both revenue growth and profitability in a pretty tough macroeconomic environment. Um, you know, we understand the response, but we feel it is a bit unwarranted just given how we are uh, really well positioned uh, for the long run. How dire are the supply chain challenges you're facing and how are you navigating them? You know, I think this has been going on for quite some time. You know, we've navigated through tough supply chain uh, environment all through 2020, through 2021. Uh, we've seen a bit more uh, uh, unpredictability in 2022, but we feel as though we're really well uh, you know, positioned, right? We are airing more of our goods in throughout the rest of this year. Uh, we're adjusting our product launch calendar and we're able to really take action so that we can bring in our products uh, for our healthcare professionals who need them so badly right now to get to work and, and help us all as, you know, the pandemic even goes on from here. The pandemic, as you say, it's still with us. What are you hearing from the healthcare community and, and, and how does that translate into demand? You know, I think from the demand side, we feel really uh, great, right? This is a, um, a, a recession a recession resistant industry. We make non-discretionary products. Healthcare professionals need our products to do their jobs and go to work every day. We're a replenishment driven business. 70% of our business comes from repeat customers. Uh, but our healthcare professionals, it's been tough. And, you know, our job at FIGS is to celebrate, empower, and serve those who serve others. So every day we wake up here, how can we get our products to the people that need them most? And we're going to continue to do that. Now, you're focused on reinventing scrubs for frontline workers. But I wonder, are there opportunities and avenues for growth in the lifestyle category? Yes, I mean, I think that's what's been really interesting about what we've done, right? We really, before figs, it was a V-neck top and a drawstring pair of pants. Uh, we reinvented the industry with function and comfort and style uh, and fabric technology that none of which existed. And then on the lifestyle side, to your, your point, we grew eight, that part of our business, non-scrubs, 81% uh, year over year uh, in the quarter. 18% uh, of our net revenues is, is everything outside of scrubs that are, as our healthcare professionals are essentially layering all of our products to go to work, at work, from work, on shift, off shift, head to toe. And it's really encouraging to see uh, that level of growth uh, across the business. So last quick question, you and your co-CEO built this company together. Rare to see two women, public company CEOs running a company together. What's your advice to other executives, other founders in turbulent times like this? Yeah, I think it's uh, to, you know, be realistic in the near term and optimistic over the long run. Uh, we are very focused on the, the long term and, and really our community, building incredible products for the most incredible people. That's what our healthcare professionals are. We call them awesome humans. Uh, and hmm. really focus on your mission and your values, which is what Heather and I try to do here every day. Trina Spear, FIGS co-CEO and co-founder, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Emily.
And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Wall Street Week coming up next with my colleague David Weston and former U.S. Treasury Secretary Larry Summers and a bunch of other great guests. They're going to be talking about Elon Musk. And next week, Bloomberg Tech Tuesday will be on the road in Boston. We've got a great lineup of guests to talk about what's new in Boston's Silicon Alley and more. Have a wonderful weekend. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.